Our first scripture this reading this morning is from the book of Psalms, and it's perhaps a familiar psalm, Psalm 139, with selected verses beginning at verse 1. Let's listen to what the Word of God says to us, to the church today. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Your knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you, nor was I being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end. I am still with you. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of uh, the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18, verses 1 to 11. Let's listen again for a word from God. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Come, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my word. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord? Like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pick up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. And at another moment, I may declare concerning the nation or of a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good I had intended for it. Now therefore, say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Look, I am a potter shaving, shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now, all of you, from your evil ways and amend your ways and your doing. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? O oh God, may the words of my mouth 
and the meditation of all of our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So one of the prominent similarities between today's scriptures, one you might have noticed, is this idea about formation. And I thought what we might do this morning is just kind of think together about, with both of these texts, about that concept and kind of tease out some of its facets. Now, when we think about formation, I tend to start as a, a person who likes them with stories. If you've been a person in one of our new members gatherings, or really if you've ever met another human being, you've probably been invited to tell a story about yourself. Maybe something that was formative for you in your faith life, in your life in the world, something that you anchor to, something that helps you understand the world and where you are. I think if we took a moment to identify just a few of those stories each and spent the rest of worship telling them to each other, we're not going to do that. I'm just saying if we did. We would probably be here long past noon and would need some lunch. The point is that we all have formation stories, individually and as communities. There are those where were you whens that help you sort of orient yourself in time. The, oh, remember that time? Or I could not believe that happened. And of course, those aren't the only stories that we hold on to. There are quieter stories, some deeply private that we don't bring out to share, some in mixed company or sometimes even at all. Stories of trauma, pain, or disappointment loss. We might not give them voice, but they nonetheless form us. They inform who we are and how we live. For the people Jeremiah is called to prophesy to, the, one of the big events that informs everything is the recent fall and destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Their kingdom has fallen to Babylonian expansion, and the priests and high-ranking leaders have been deported and displaced into captivity. The temple, their central place of worship, the thing they thought they knew would always be there, has been destroyed. One of their formative stories has broken. And its place is frustration, fear, unknowingness, and a desire to maintain some semblance of control the question, why has this happened, and who are we now, are big drivers of this community, not just in Jeremiah, but in Isaiah and in Ezekiel and in prophets all across the Hebrew Bible. This event is shaping a community. Their story has broken, it has collapsed, and there are real lived implications for what comes next. This isn't an intellectual exercise. There are bodies on the line. So while I will come back, I promise, to those questions about fear and instability, one of the things that I want us to remember is it's not only stories that shape us. There are a whole host of things that make us who we are. Where we grew up, the culture around us, the weather we expect and or tolerate, the music, the food, the quality of the air or the water or the soil, we are formed by so much. And the second thing this 
texts have in common is they are deeply grounded in and they value somatic knowledge. They are embodied. The psalmist's interactions with God's knowledge of her do not rely on her simply staying put. She sits. She rises up. She travels the world. She speaks. She has a bedtime ritual. She thinks. She counts. She faces death with all of its attendant embodied emotions. And for God's part, there is a clear sense that God's knowledge of the psalmist includes her body. There is touching, guiding, holding, and presence, actions, not abstract ideas. This gets solidified in the ways that the psalmist invites us to think about God as a former, a maker, a knitter, a weaver. These are crafting words. What do you see when you picture those words? What do you feel? What do you hear? Do you hear the dull plunking of the pickup stick? The clacking of needles? The creak of the threads against the shuttle as they're twisted and tightened and sequenced into place? Can you see the weaver's fingers dancing across the expanse lifting and dropping and counting and forming the pattern, the tapestry. Whatever it is we understand about God, we understand it best with our whole body. And we see the centrality of somatic knowing again in Jeremiah. God literally wants Jeremiah to get up and go for a walk to somebody else's house, to see something, to smell something, to feel the temperature change on the, his skin from indoor to outdoor and indoor again, because those things are part of what God has to say through Jeremiah. I think this is important because scripture can sometimes feel really abstract, especially when we're talking about something like prophecy. But here, something about God's message cannot be conveyed by words alone. There's something he needs to see and experience in order to fully appreciate and then be able to communicate God's point to God's people. God's word is not just something for us to think about. It's somatic. It's embodied. The coolness of the clay, the hum of the wheel, the splash of the water, the vibrant glazes on the finished pieces reflecting light that shines in through a window I see in my holy imagination. The project set aside or still in process, waiting for the kiln. All of those are pieces of what God wants Jeremiah to experience. Formation is an embodied experience. It's also a process. Jeremiah can't just hear God's words, can't just passively receive them. To fully engage them, there's an action he needs to take. There's a change that must be made. As I mentioned before, he's talking to a group of people who have been displaced from their homes. Their leaders are gone, and there's big, why did this happen, energy going on. And Jeremiah is not unique in this regard, but what is different for him is how he approaches the question of what do we do next. 
So as a small, nerdy biblical aside, Isaiah has all of the Isaiah prophecies, which we read often around Christmas in particular, uh, rests in the comfort of an eternal promise that the people, or at least some portion of them, will survive, and God will always be faithful. Jeremiah does not have that safety net. For Jeremiah, the only indication people have that God will be faithful is God's past action, and if you have any money in the market, you might know that past performance is not an indication of future returns. His answer to the question instead why did this happen to us, is you did this to you. These are literally the consequences of your actions. And frankly, assuming that God is just going to swoop in and save you, no matter what you do, is not a good plan. It's passing the buck. It's refusing to take responsibility. God loves you, but God is sovereign. God has total freedom to change God's mind. God wants to be in relationship and covenant with God's people. But Jeremiah says relationships take effort on both sides. If you're not interested in honoring that relationship, if you keep doing the same thing over and over and ignoring that relationship, why do you assume God will just keep showing up and bailing you out without consequence? Formation requires action. And in Jeremiah... The call to repent is a necessary prerequisite of beginning to repair relationship. Because formation requires perspective. This idea that God isn't just going to swoop in and fix it all for you doesn't come out of nowhere in Jeremiah. There are 18 chapters where he's been calling the people to turn back to God, prophesying, doing sign acts, saying, look, come back. God loves you. God wants to be in relationship with you. Honor the covenant that you've made. And yet, in light of this, the people can't see it. They're so stuck in their stories, in their decisions, in their plans, that even after this story about the potter, where God says, I'm currently forming evil, but like, it could be good. It could be good. It doesn't have to be this. The people say in verse 18, it is of no use. We will follow our own plans, and each of us will act in accordance with the stubbornness of our own will. The people are saying, we are incapable of being reworked. It is what it is. We're fixed. We're certain. We're not going to deviate from the purpose we understand for ourselves. We're like that fired ceramic. Let me tell you what God can't do, and it's changed this shape. It's like the equivalent of them all just being like, It's a loss of perspective. They believe themselves to be fixed vehicles. And Jeremiah says, no, you are clay. You are a people constantly in process, constantly changing, constantly building up, collapsing, and beginning again. You're not going to be put in the kiln. And that's, frankly, kind of challenging, at least to me. Because we want to know. We want to be whole. We want to understand our purpose and fully grasp it. We don't really want to be ambiguous. Who wants that? And 
what will it mean if we don't understand what's next? If we are clay, that means sitting with the ever-present reality of reformation, of change, of not being the potter. It means living with the ambiguity in that lump of clay space. Formation, as the clay, suggests a lack of control that makes us, frankly, kind of uncomfortable. And yet, there is one very important insight that this, these texts have about formation that speaks directly into that fear. Formation does require trust, but it's not something we go through alone. In the potter, Jeremiah shows us the fragility and limitedness of our understanding, but also the fluidity of our circumstances, and undergirding all of that is God the potter, who desires and has interest in forming us into something that God finds good. Formation will require action. It will be ongoing. It will change our perspectives and entail ambiguity. It may not be comfortable, but all of that is meant to be experienced in light of a God who loves us and knows us intimately. We may not know what God's good looks like, but we can trust that even and especially in those places of ambiguity, God is present with us. The potter doesn't leave the clay on the wheel to spin itself. The psalmist does not only talk about her plans and day-to-day -day realities as places where God is present. She specifically names unformed places. Spaces beyond understanding. Spaces where control, individual control, is not even possible. Those are spaces, the psalmist tells us, that are saturated with God's presence and intent. Among all the forces that act on us and shape us, God is the greatest. Listening to God's voice, being shaped by God's vision for our lives, is a whole body experience. It's not enough to hear the words. We have to take action. And scripture promises us that that will be challenging. The stories of faith that we read there are stories of crumbling, of falling short, of having seasons where things feel off balance and unmoored. But it also promises us that we are not at any point alone on that journey. In our thinking, in our planning, in our doing, in our moments of confidence, and in the places where we feel most unformed, in all of it, God is there with us, forming and reforming and holding us secure. May it be so.